You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hello, I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And you're listening to the Australian Finance Podcast. A podcast where we talk about money, finance, investing, and all that good stuff. We're helping you invest your time and money better one podcast episode at a time. Yes, so please subscribe if you like the series. And don't forget you can find us on social media. We're on all the platforms. Kate, where can people go? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Rask Australia. That's R-A-S-K Australia. Mm -hmm. And I'm Owen Rask on Twitter. Or Owen Rask AU on Instagram. Beware the imitators. People like to copy us. Without further ado, let's jump in to today's episode. Well, Sim, welcome onto the Australian Finance Podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, it was lovely to meet everyone when I was in Melbourne, and I'm just glad that we've had a chance to finally do this. Amazing. And you're joining us from New Zealand today. I am all the way from New Zealand. Which is fantastic because I don't think we've spoken to many Kiwis on the podcast before. So it's fantastic to get a slightly different perspective to it all, though we're not that dissimilar um, between Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, we honestly, I think people make it seem like New Zealand and Australia have so many differences. But when it when you break it down, like we're more like cousins. Do you know what I mean? Wonderful. Well, before we jump into today's episode, if people haven't heard about you and the community you've built and the book you've written, Girls That Invest, are you able to give us the, the elevator pitch? Oh, I love the elevator pitch. Yeah, absolutely. So hi, my name's Sim. I run Girls That Invest and we've been very fortunate to be the world's number one investing podcast for women. We've been featured in Vogue, we've been featured in the BBC, Business Insider. We've had a lot of great success. And I think that comes down to, you know, what we do day to day, which is empowering people to think that maybe they can invest, especially for those that may have considered, you know, money not to be a topic for them. And that can sometimes look like the podcast that we have. Um, it can look like the book that we've put out. It can look like the masterclasses that we do, or even just the, you know, Instagram accounts that we run where we share little tidbits and, you know, that's growing 
in, in such a crazy amount. I think we're sitting at like 170 something thousand followers. And if you had asked me two years ago, like, do you think that this would have happened uh, with this the sort of like side hustle that you started? I would have been like, absolutely not. Um, so it's been quite a journey. Yeah, because you were an optometrist before, were you? Yeah, so I did not start out in finance before. I was an optometrist. I studied um, a certificate in financial markets just for my own personal learning. Like we get taught at uni to try and seek out other areas of interest. I also studied um, marketing as sort of a side one, which I guess worked out quite well too. What really stood out to me in your book, Sim, is that it showed a lot of representation that really hasn't been around in the financial world before. And I think reading it and even seeing the response from your community, a lot of people saw themselves in a book about money for the very first time, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, it's I, I didn't really realize how important representation was. Like, obviously, it's important. Obviously, I didn't invest for a long time because I didn't see people that look like me doing it. But even the little details like the names, like I wanted to make sure that the people in the books and the names and the references that we used, even they were people of color, you know, you don't see names that are Indian or names that are Chinese put in books because it almost feels like, you know, one race or one group of people or one gender even is the standard. And so just small details like that to say, hey, look, you are absolutely invited. And now, you know, there's no excuse to learn about money. Like there is that representation. Mm. And I think that inviting people into that conversation, because I have been to many finance and investing book, uh, book, well, I've read many books, but I've been to many events over the last five or six years, and you often don't see yourself represented in that room. And it makes it really hard to start having those conversations. And one of the things you mentioned in your book is that investing just doesn't make sense. So it must be me right. And I've heard that come up time and time again, through people I've spoken to and our listeners. And I was wondering if you could share some about your path in making sense of investing and breaking down those barriers and beliefs that have held you and other people back from getting started. It was something that I really wanted to mention in the book when I was writing it because it was so hard for me to do, which was that whole mindset thing. Like I still recall the first time I ever came across um, investing was when I was quite young and I remember like a friend telling me that her dad had taught her about investing granted we were like nine years old so she had quite a head start and I was like oh this is cool like let me go ask my dad about it and my dad is an engineer and you know he tried his best but none of it really stuck by me and instead of you know I mean hindsight's twenty twenty. but instead of saying oh okay like let me go ask someone else like is there anyone I know that's in finance is there a book I could read for young people I just assumed that I wasn't smart enough for it. And that same sort of situation occurred when I was in university, you know, in my first year. And I had a friend tell me that he knew someone that paid off his medical school uh, fees, which now that I think about it, trying to do that with the stock market is actually quite difficult in such a short period of time. But I didn't know any better in that moment. And well, you know, his dad works in finance was really my mindset that was holding me back from even trying. Like it's one thing to try and realize that you suck at something, but to not even give it a go was just like my own mental block that I had. And it often takes that first step, but that first step is so hard to take. How do you recommend your listeners now, if they're really scared about taking that first step, what what sort of advice would you give them? 
I think it's really an unlearning, which is so cheesy, right? Like your first step is to unlearn something. Um, I realize how it comes across, but for me, I truly want to like say time and time and again, hey, if you tr- if you think the stock market is not for you, it's just for finance bros or it's just for certain groups of people, then you'll never do it. You'll never get to the stage of investing or if you want to buy property, if you don't see yourself ever owning property, then you won't. And you know, obviously there's other factors involved, like the capital that you need, the resources, the people, the privilege that's sometimes involved in all of these things. But if you truly can't pitch yourself in those situations, being the kind of person that invests or being the kind of person that's good with money, then it's really hard to take on the advice and learnings that you get and actually turn them into action. I think that's a really good place to start because we often just keep putting that cycle in our head that we're not good with money. And the more we repeat it to ourselves, the more we start to believe it. And it's really hard to get out of that point. And I love talking about the mindset bit. It really unpacks why people do what they do. And I was wondering if you were able to share a bit more about the why behind like what money actually means to you and what opportunities it's opened up in your life. Yeah, I just remember growing up and seeing a lot of women in my life in situations that they you know didn't have to be in but were in because of money so you know staying in relationships that maybe weren't great for them or staying in jobs and you know there's some women in my lives that wanted to start businesses but their partners were really risk adverse and because it was such a patriarchal background um you know that was the final say and it was no I'm the breadwinner therefore I call the shots And I just remember watching that and thinking, God, like, I do not want any part of that. I don't want to be in a situation where that's the life I'm living. And so I really view money as a tool as opposed to something that helps you, you know, live a very luxurious life. I'm, you know, I'm sure a nice big house is great. I'm sure a really fancy car is great. But to me, like growing my wealth and growing my financial freedom is truly about freedom and is truly about choices. And I love that I can make those choices now. And I love that I can wake up and say, oh, I'm only taking this opportunity because I want to and not because I have to. And I think it'd be nice if everyone had that freedom, whatever that may look like to them. You've been really vocal on your journey, uh, investing and building wealth, sharing sort of the numbers behind the scene. And uh, I know I recently saw a post and a podcast you did about your journey getting to a million dollars, which you don't often see people share those numbers. And uh, like even to me, that seems really scary sharing those numbers openly. And I was wondering if you've, have you faced any challenges sharing um, the numbers behind the scenes so openly? No, I think a lot of people do wonder like, you know, is there some shame around it or are you going to ostracize people or people in your life at least? And I think it just depends on the way that you do it. Like if I, I truly believe that if I was sharing these numbers and, you know, showing maybe off or coming across like this is what I have if you want this then like you know do xyz I think that could come off quite slimy but I've been sharing my numbers since you know I had a net worth of eight thousand dollars and back then you know that was just that there's no association of that with my self-worth so I was like of course like let me share it and then as time went on I continued to share them and you know as our businesses grew um, that continued to increase our net worth and so I've been very lucky. I've been surrounded by a lot of great people that don't find it odd or want to make, you know, ill of it. I think 
I grew up in a way where I love to see what other people had done and when they share their experiences and their numbers, that helps me. So I wanted to kind of share my journey. Um, but every now and again, I will have, you know, dinner friends and they're like, you know what, the millionaire can get the bill. <laughs> I feel like that's the fear. That's why people often don't want to talk about salaries or their net worth because they think their friends or family might treat them differently, whether it's a high net worth or a negative net worth. I think, I mean, it's a lot easier said than done when you have more money, but I just never put my self-worth in line with my salary or my money. And so when I first started off my job, like me, you know, me and my colleagues would talk about money and me and my friends would talk about money. And to me, it was just one of those things that you did. And I guess it comes down to, you know, there's, there probably are people in everyone's lives that you can talk quite openly about these things. And there probably are people that would find it odd. And you, I guess you just don't have conversations with those people about money. Like it's, I find it quite simple. Yeah. If someone has never had a conversation about money with anyone in their friends or family, is there any sort of questions you might think that are potentially safe starting points? Oh, absolutely. I am that friend that always initiates the conversation. So I have an entire little book worth of um, prompts <laughs> that you could take in my head. I guess what's always worked for me is offering your information first. Like it is a much different conversation if you go up to a friend and say, hey, how much do you make first? Hey, I'm on the salary in this industry. Um, and kind of seeing if they want to talk about it as well or if they shut it down quickly. Because I have had friends who, when I've brought up salaries, they've been like, look, I don't really feel comfortable sharing it. It's not, you know, my priority right now to work on that. There's other things going on in my life. And I think that's fair enough. And in those friendships, we just, you know, don't talk about money. There's other things to speak of. But offering to share information first always opens up the room because you're the one being vulnerable. And when you come from a place of vulnerability, then you're more likely to elicit, you know, a more positive response. And even with your family, because it's always difficult having a conversation, especially with our parents. Mm. Um, we've had a lot of people in our community say, you know, like, how do I talk to my parents about their retirement? How do I talk to them about the goals that I know that they should be taking? But they're my parents, you know, I'm their child. And it's such a it's such a difficult conversation to have. And we would often say in those instances, like you just have to tread so carefully because when it comes to money, that's really personal. And someone can take you bringing up money as an attack. So you never want to start it with advice. You never want to say, hey, I think you should be doing this. Or, hey, I'd love to help you with this. It's That's not the right place to be. And it's about opening up with your journey experience and seeing if they're willing to, you know, take that conversation further. I especially think with parents, like they, after raising you, they probably don't uh, want to be told what to do by you. So even if you do think they should be doing X, Y, Z with their super, there's probably slightly better ways to go about it than like, we're sitting down now, we're going for your super, we're going to sort everything out. Uh, absolutely. And, and at the end of the day, like, you, you you come from the best place, but someone could misinterpret what you mean and like feel really hurt by it. So it's so hard, but I'd love to know, like, do you kind of talk to your friends about money and like, do they come back with like great responses or is it hard to like pull it out of them? Some friends, I think I have some friends in the finance industry. So we love nerding out about whatever <laughs> the latest FinTech is or the, the innovation on this budgeting tool. So it's a little bit um, from 
more of a fascination with the technology and the industry point of view, but some friends um, aren't in a position right now where they have much money. And so talking about financial goals uh, is a little bit different because for them, it's more of saving up for something in the next month. And they're not really in the place where they can think about something as far off as superannuation and retirement. So I'd probably tailor the conversation a little bit to more financial, like short-term financial goals. Okay, you want to save for a weekend holiday. We can chat about that. That's really exciting to think about how that's going to look, how we can save for that. Um, Some friends are just sort of in the emergency fund accumulation phase and more, I just want to be their cheerleader um, when they want that support. But I have known, uh, I've sort of found that it's good sometimes to just step back. Like you can say your piece, but um, at the end of the day, it's their life. So it's not really good for anyone if you keep repeating uh, something to them. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. It's, yeah, you just, you got to find that balance for sure. Oh, something, this is probably off topic, but I've learned sometimes you want to be in advice mode and sometimes you want to just be in listening mode. And sometimes it's even good to ask the friend what mode they want before going into a conversation, because if they just want to vent and they're not in the space to receive advice, then you're just both going to butt heads because you're like, oh, this is a really good idea. You should do that. And they're just like, I do not want ideas right now. I just want to let it out. Oh, absolutely. My friends and I will do that. We'll be, we will literally say, hey, do you want advice or do you just want me to listen? Because you're so right. Otherwise, you're just going <laughs> to end up with more of a problem. And it's probably good to think about how you can do that if your friends are talking about their money issues because sometimes they don't want a solution to them right then and there. They don't want you to just help them with their emergency fund. They just want to vent about something that happened. That's that's such a good point. Yeah, I love that. And something else I wanted to talk about is the issue of comparison because it comes up time and time again in our community. And how do you navigate financial comparison? Because it's really hard when you see people online, maybe someone sees your net worth or their friends or family salary and really thinks they should be at a certain point and they're not. So they don't feel great inside. How do you approach that? I approach it in two parts. One, like the first aspect of like my own comparisons, I used to be someone that really would compare, not financially, but maybe like how my brands are doing. And so before Girls at Invest, I've run a number of, you know, other media companies before, and they have been such fun experiences but I would really get in my own head and like well look at this brand or what are they doing or you know this and that like they're so much smaller but they're doing so much more new projects like I should really you know get onto it and so that experience has taught me like if I mean it's it's that like really really cheesy saying that comparison really is the thief of joy And my personal view is that the only person I'm in competition with is myself. And as long as I'm better than Simran from yesterday or Simran from last month or last year, then I'm doing okay, whether that's in business, whether that's in my finances. Um, And that's really helped me keep my own head down in terms of comparisons financially with others. I think I try to offset it by also showing all aspects of it. So you're not just seeing my highlight reel. You're not just seeing, you know, us getting a book deal. or You're not just seeing like the great things that come from growing your wealth. You also see like, you know, when we burn out, we talk about it on the podcast, when we have experiences that are not so great that are related to money, we talk about it. The ceiling of my house fell down the other day, like the entire oh no. ceiling the roof is still intact. I don't know how it's happened. It's an ongoing investigation. <laughs> um, 
I don't know if it's the glue or what it is. There wasn't some big, you know, wind event or anything, but like, we'll share that. Um, and that's just information that, you know, we'll go, well, look, isn't it so good that we have an emergency fund and we have insurance and, you know, life happens. Um, so I think it's all about sharing the good and the bad. And hopefully people can see that there are pros and cons to all aspects of life. And it's absolutely not like this rosy picture. And I'd hate if anyone looked at what we did and thought that we had it all figured out. I think that's a good approach because sometimes people don't realize that everyone's starting their their race on their personal finances from a different point. And some people might start a hundred meters Um, back from the start line because they're trying to get out of debt or people might start ahead of the start line for various reasons. And so if you're just comparing to people's highlight reels, it can be really um, unhealthy and it can put you in a bad place because you just don't know where people are starting from. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a good point as well. I didn't even think to mention that. Yeah. You don't even know where people have started from. Like I've been so lucky. We speak about our privilege a lot. You know, we got to stay at home going to university that helped us save quite a bit of money. We didn't have to go out and rent and, you know, worry about that. That let us focus on getting good grades and getting good jobs. And, you know, even little things in in that regard, we've also been able-bodied. We've had a good, you know, somewhat stable home environment and things that led us to go out and change that mad I probably wouldn't do if I was in survival mode and so to compare you know that with maybe someone else's life who is actually just trying to get by and is doing so well for themselves because they've taken strides and leaps from where they've started but to compare like that life to maybe the one that someone else has um, would be so unfair unless we live the exact same life there's probably no point comparing now changing things up a little bit are there any money myths that you want to bust for me today I would say the biggest money myth that I want to bust which is actually I guess preaching to the choir because I know your audience are very well versed in this, but it's that, you know, money is not hard and learning how to invest and learning how to talk about money, learning how to set up your super and, you know, put, put together a portfolio. These aren't things that are difficult. These are just things that we grow up feeling like is not for us. So we, you are putting away a little bit towards an emergency fund and you're overall just like on top of a few things here and there and you have somewhat of a budget and you have some insurances set up you're actually doing really 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 well but we make ourselves think that you know god we could be doing so much better yeah i think that comes down to just taking it one step at the time doesn't it because the things you mentioned they're not too complicated but if you try to do them all in one day it becomes really overwhelming and you end up stopping doing anything and I think that's another challenge that overcoming analysis paralysis which I'm sure both of our communities face. Yeah the analysis paralysis is a killer. Has there been anything that works for you in dealing with that? In dealing with analysis paralysis I think what works for me is this like one saying that I tell myself and it's that no, someone who's probably not as smart as you is just braver than you and they're going out and doing it and they're achieving what they're after. And sometimes it does take a lot out of very intelligent people to get themselves out of their heads because we want to overanalyze. So if you are overthinking investing or overthinking, you know, where to put your money or your budget plan just means you're a very smart person. You're trying to look at all of the risks associated But someone else that may have, you know, 
can I say this, a few less brain cells in you, they're going, let me just try it. And at the end of the day, them trying means they will try and fail and learn and get better. And they'll probably end up doing really well for themselves because they're taking steps and learning on the go. And one of my faults is that I want to understand everything before I, you know, put my foot in or dip my toe in. Um, And that always, you know, isn't the best way of going about things. Because I know some people will spend a whole year trying to pick a brokerage account and that does put you back in terms of the opportunity you've got for compound interest, um, whether you're investing in shares or ETFs or something else. And I mean, I take that 90% is good enough approach with my finances. Like I don't need the best broker. I just need a decent broker and I don't necessarily need the best ETF. I just need an ETF that's going to do the job. And so maybe I could spend another 10 hours trying to pick the lowest fee or the lowest something else, but I just want a strategy that's going to work. It doesn't need to be perfect. Oh, I love that. I it's funny you call it the ninety percent rule. I call it the eighty percent rules. I I don't even achieve ninety. I'm just oh, like okay. God. Like let's just get started. Yeah. And I I think you know even with the brand that we run, even with that, you know, I could have spent so long being like, what do we name it? What's the cover pick? We just jumped on Canva, put it together, came up with a name. Said, let's just start. And I, I I try to approach that with my money as well. Like, let's just make, like you said, one of the main things that we see in our community is people will spend a year trying to find the best broker. And it's like, God, just pick one, you know, close your eyes and throw a dart and pick one. They probably aren't too bad. They might not be perfect, but they'll do 80% of what you're after. And sometimes that's just what you need to start. And then you can evaluate as you go, as long as you know, you can move things around easily. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's often not until you actually pick a broker and get started that you realize what you actually wanted in a broker to begin with. And it's by just jumping in and taking that first step that you start to realize, okay, this is the direction I want to go in. But if you stay in just uh, the theoretical hypothetical mode um, for years, it's very hard to really know what you want out of your finances. Yeah. Sometimes it's just easier to give yourself a date and be like, by this date, I will choose one. And if I haven't chosen one, I'll just choose, you know, a random one and go from there. Sometimes you need to put a deadline on it. Okay. Yeah. I like that approach. Uh, Putting a deadline on the goal and maybe telling a friend to make sure you're held to that as well. Um, And something else I wanted to talk about because it has been a particularly volatile time at the moment and some new investors haven't seen conditions like this before, but I was wondering if you had any tips for listeners who may be looking at their portfolio and feeling a little bit nervous or apprehensive or wondering if they made the right choice, how would they stay calm? What would you suggest? I think it comes down to one, understanding what you're investing for. And so if you're someone that is like me and you're like, hey, I'm probably investing for a good, you know, 20, 30 years. I I have a goal to retire early and I'd like to do that by, you know, age 50, 55, whatever that may look like for you, maybe earlier if you're luckier. It's understanding, well, the volatility in the market, one, is something that's not new but it's remembering that these things happen. It's part of the investing cycle. And yes, it's so much easier said than done. Um, And when you do look at your portfolio and you see, gosh, it's down like 22%, like that's a big number and it's in red. They don't make it easy on us. (laughs) They like really say it is down. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, recalling what you're investing for. And suddenly it puts into perspective it puts it into perspective. And if you realize, well, you know, my portfolio might be down a year or two years or possibly three or four years, but I'm investing for 20 years. It doesn't make it seem as much of a catastrophe. You know, 
the second thing I've, I've noted is that you've got to understand, you know, your risk profile. And if you were someone that thought I can handle risk and you've bought a lot of individual shares, well, this is just that whole risk versus reward aspect. You know, this is not to say this is what you've signed up for, but to a degree, like it's part of the game. You can't just get the rewards without the few niggly bits. And if you're in a well-diversified portfolio and you've got your shares across multiple countries, multiple companies, multiple sectors, then you're probably going to be able to sleep a lot easier at night because, you know, as the share market moves, so do your shares, so do do your portfolios. And so you're going to end up in a place that is a happy medium. And the third thing that I would say is at the end of the day, this is, and you've probably heard this to the point where it's almost annoying to hear, but it is a sale. It is a moment where the shares that you would usually buy are just cheaper right now. And if you're not planning to pull that money out, well, you know, you're just continuing to dollar cost average. And so for me, one, knowing why I'm investing, two, knowing that I'm diversified and three, knowing that I'm dollar cost averaging and not worried about trying to time the market. Those three things just really help me sleep easy at night. And it allows me to say, yes, it's a tough time in the market. Yes. I hate seeing that my portfolio is down, but this is a long-term thing and I'm really having a short-term view on it. So I've got to you know, get out of my own head. Yeah, I like that way of reframing it and really bringing it back to your your core principles of why you invested in the first place. Because sometimes when we look at our portfolio, we can forget what the original plan was because we just get stuck in looking at those red numbers. They they definitely make it look a bit scary by putting it in negative twenty two percent. So because I saw you were actually sharing your your figures on Twitter the other day. Yeah, yeah. So I, like I said, we're all about making it as transparent as possible. And if we're going to share our highs, we're going to share our lows as well. Absolutely. I love that because a lot of people in the finance industry and funds management, especially if they've had a particularly bad time with portfolio performance, they'll they'll make it really small and they won't publish (laughs) it and they won't post about it. But if they've had a year where they've gone up 30%, well, that'll be all over their website and their social media. So it's good to see both sides of it. Yeah, I think it's all about like my view is if you jump online and you speak about your money, you should speak about it all. I like that. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is related to money, but also related to life and career. But it really struck me um, when we were at Glenn James's My Millennial Money event in Melbourne, which was uh, where I had the opportunity to meet you and a lot of listeners, which was fantastic. You shared some thoughts on burnout. And it's not a concept I'd thought too much about or heard anyone really speak about before. So what you said, it really stuck with me. And I was wondering if you could share with listeners how you, like, what was burnout firstly, if people haven't come across it before, and maybe how you identified that you'd hit a wall and something had to change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, burnout was not like, again, I was an optometrist, so we didn't actually have like corporate lingo, so to speak. We didn't even do emails. It was a big shock, you know, changing over jobs. Um, And one of the things that I learned was this concept called burnout and very much like yourself for a long time. I was like, what is it like? And I kind of brush it aside. It wasn't my misunderstanding of burnout was that burnout was just that you're too tired or you're not interested in doing certain things because you're too tired or you're too busy. So you like, you know, push those projects off to the side. And I was like, fair enough, but I love what I do. So I'm not burnt out. And then it really hit me that burnout was when you're so like genuinely exhausted to the point where 
work feels like every little task feels so draining and you're at a point where you know you're disinterested you're tired you're cranky like it was almost like a form of depression but like a work depression and that's when I kind of you know hit into that space earlier this year when I was taking on a lot of projects I was writing my book I was trying to organize all of our partnerships I was trying to just run the brand as a one woman um company and now that I look back at it, I'm almost like, of course, I was burnt out. That's so many different things to do, but you don't realize it in the moment. And it took me a lot. And I was very lucky to have friends like Sonia, my co-host in my life to kind of say, hey, you know, being financially secure is important, but it shouldn't come at the cost of your own health. And I think that was a concept I really struggled with. I think Also, if you come from somewhat of a background where you have parents that work really hard and are somewhat hustlers, you know, my parents were immigrants. So I saw them really just the whole story of, you know, came from nothing and worked their way to where they are now. That was just the way I'd been brought up to think about money. It wasn't slow and steady wins the race. It was just like, go, go, go. And so Mm -hmm. burnout is so important when it comes to your finances. It's just not something we speak about. Uh, often enough, I would say. And once you you realize you got to this point, how did you sort of make some changes to stop being in that place anymore? I think it just comes down to like understanding what you can control, understanding what you like and so simple, it's so easy to say, but just like either outsourcing or deciding that something is not, you know, important enough. And so whilst I used to maybe track every single thing I would spend my money on I've learned to go okay no this is just my budget and as long as I spend less than that budget as long as that you know debit card that I have associated with that bank account doesn't empty um, for my you know maybe hundred dollars allowance a week or whatever it may be then I'm fine I don't have to track every single thing so sometimes it can look like that just taking a step back and still achieving what you're after but not you know going as hard and as fast as you may have been going Yeah, there's definitely a place for maybe for a couple of months or six months of having quite a a budget where you track everything. So you get to know how you're spending and what's coming in and out of your life. But then you don't want to be doing that forever because it does make you quite, it makes it a lot harder to spend money and really enjoy what you've built. So there's certain things you'll do for, for a season or for a reason, but just not consistently because it does make it hard to enjoy everything. Oh, absolutely. We're on the same page. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad you've worked through burnout and uh, hopefully you're staying away from that area now. Oh, absolutely. I like have a whole setup. It's like all automated with my finances. My personal life is a lot less stressful. My company's a lot less stressful. I like jump into bed now, put on pajamas, read a little book. And I'm like, wow, like I'm not checking emails. This is great. Like, who am I? I love that. I love that. And before we wrap up today, I was wondering if you could leave us with maybe your number one money lesson. My number one money lesson. Oh, I think the one that's just like blowing my mind is that money is not something that involves you taking from someone else. That was something I really believed for a long time. And it really um, pushed me away from money for a long time, made me think it was evil, that it was taboo to talk about. But it really just is a tool and you can use that tool for terrible things and you can use that tool for your own personal agendas that might not be, you know, in the best interest of everyone else, but it can also be a tool to improve your life. It can be a tool to 
do things that you enjoy and outsource things that you don't enjoy and making almost like creating the sort of story of your life in a way that suits you as opposed to gosh like I guess this is my next chapter I guess this is what I have to do you get to sort of write your own story and I think that just blew my mind and it's really just stuck with me I like that I like that Um, sometimes I hear people say I don't want to talk about money it's I don't really want to think about it but money is so involved in every area of our life and um, if we have a little bit more control and understanding of how it works and be able to set some things up in the background it just makes a lot of things a lot easier absolutely yeah and it's such it's such little things but they all add up right yeah, it does, it does move a few things. So something I've said, I was saying to a friend recently is it doesn't stop the bad stuff from happening, but it does make it a little bit easier. Um, and I've seen that time and time again in my life. And I'm super grateful for being able to start early and actually put myself in a position where I do have some money to help when something really bad happens. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, I mean, just the example today, like my ceiling, if I did not have an emergency fund, if I could not afford insurance, like that would probably bankrupt me. Like that's a terrible place to be. But um, yeah, just all the little things add up. Money is a tool and you can choose how you use it. I think that's a great takeaway from today. And Sim, if people want to learn more about you, join the Girls That Invest community and grab a copy of your book, where should they go? If you're wanting to find us, you can search up girls that invest on any of those platforms. Um, And if you're after the book, we are available in all major bookstores in Australia. We've got Dimmix, QBD, Big W, um, Booktopia, anywhere that you're after. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a great chat. I, I love questions like these. They're so fun. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat all the way from New Zealand. It's wonderful to speak to you and to meet you uh, at your event the other month. And uh, yeah, just all the best for your journey with Girls That Invest. You're uh, championing a very important cause. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, 
I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.